0: This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen.
1: We are continuing with part two of our three-part series featuring friends Kendall and Ian. Last week, Kendall shared his story, and if you have not had a chance to listen to it, you should check it out. On today's episode, Ian will be joining us. He will be sharing about why he wanted to come to this Church of Christ in Oklahoma, what he witnessed and experienced while he was there, his relationship with Kendall, and how his time at this church has impacted him, his family, and his faith. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.
0: I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Marsfield bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options.
2: But the bus ain't gonna stop.
0: Welcome back, everybody, and we are honored to have Ian today, and Ian is going to be sharing his story about his time at a church in Oklahoma. He's a former pastor there, and we're just thrilled to have you here, Ian, today sharing your story. So welcome to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, we like to kind of start off and get to know you a little bit better and help us help the listeners know you a little bit better about your story. So let's just jump into ultimately, why did you decide to go into ministry
2: in the first place? I mean, my dad was a was a minister when I was growing up. You know, some of my earliest memories are actually at the church where, where he was uh preaching at the time. And so like that was always in the back of my mind, uh, that, you know, that's something that I could do with my life. Uh when I was really little, I wanted to be a cop, but ministry was like number two, just right there. And as I got older and realized that I don't have the sensibilities to be a, a police officer, ministry and, and in particular youth ministry became what I felt called to, what I felt I had a heart for. And so that's that's what I went to school for. You know, I went to Oklahoma Christian, which is also where my dad went to to train to be a minister. And so that, you know, I went to Oklahoma Christian and I got a, a bachelor's degree in youth ministry and loved it so much that I stayed for five more years to get my master's in theological studies. And the whole time that I was working on my master's, I was also working with a church there that was close to Oklahoma Christian. It was a really fun time to be learning all these uh, big theological ideas and then be thinking to myself, okay, so how does a seventh grader that comes into my, my class on a Wednesday night, what do they do with this? And so trying to you know figure out how to take what I was learning and giving it to them in a way that would help them and encourage them it was just a just really fun, and that period is is a time that I kind of look back on now in hindsight as maybe the the good old days that just really enjoying growing as a minister, growing as a theologian and and spending time with students uh, who are still some of my favorite people in the world I love that approach to
0: trying to figure out how someone that you're you know going to potentially teach would approach this and trying to kind of take that into account as you go through not only your education but prepare to be a, a minister that's that's a great way to look at it so ultimately you did join a church you came on staff on a church talk to us a little bit about that what church was it what was your role and how long were you
2: there so I started out at a church in, in Mustang in Oklahoma, ended up going to a church in Texas, uh, Southeast Texas, for a few years. And then I grew up in Texas, but I consider myself an Okie. That's where I've spent the majority of my adult life now. Right before I moved to Texas, I got engaged to my wife, Candace and she she grew up in Oklahoma. All her family is here. And so after three years in Texas, we really were kind of feeling a pull to want to move back to Oklahoma if there was a church that it made sense for us to move back and work with. And so there was a church in Muskogee. It was the Muskogee Church of Christ. They were looking for a youth minister, and I had been the only minister at a congregation, so I was preaching, I was doing youth ministry, I was doing administrative work, I was doing everything, and I I would— I really wanted to do just youth ministry again and get back to just that, and so that's what Muskogee was looking for. And I had also been coming more aware of the need for racial reconciliation in the church. It's something that we talked about doing at the church that I was at in Texas, and I found myself as a fairly young, white, Pastor working mainly with white leaders of a church that I was just way out of my depth. And so, one of the things that I had been praying about was, you know, God, place me at a church where I can do the work of racial reconciliation, but place me with someone who does not look like me so that I can learn from them what my blind spots are, so that I have somebody who can kind of help walk me through the minefield that that is there that I can't even tell is there. And so what was really encouraging about the Muskogee Church of Christ is that a guy named Kendall Dean was their lead minister. And Kendall is about four years older than me, uh, but he is a Black man, and he had been at Muskogee for 10 years. And, and in the interview process with Muskogee, they were talking about how they had undergone this big—they called it a strat-op— like a strategical operation or or something like that, where they'd really just kind of identified like, okay, this is the community that we're in, this is the kind of church that we are, and if we're really going to have an impact in Muskogee, this is what God wants us to do. And lo and behold, it was God wants Muskogee Church of Christ to become a more diverse church that is helping bridge the racial gap that exists in Muskogee. I saw Kendall. He and I didn't get to connect too much in the times that I interviewed, but I enjoyed the conversations that he and I had, small though they were. I knew the heart that this congregation had, or at least that I was being told that they had. And I had friends who had heard of the Muskogee Church of Christ. The Churches of Christ uh, typically worship a cappella. We don't use instruments, but Muskogee does use instruments, which is usually a sign of a quote-unquote progressive congregation in the Churches of Christ. And so I, I kept hearing from people that, oh, that's that's one of the good churches. You know, they're they're really progressive. And we got there, and women were praying in the service. A woman gave the communion talk before we all took communion, which is, again, not typically something you see in the churches of Christ and so there were all these signs that hey this is a place where you know my wife and I could be comfortable that the gifts that my wife has would be appreciated and the heart that God has given me for youth and racial reconciliation would be appreciated and it just it seemed like everything was was lining up to be the place that that uh, God was calling us to go and do good work
1: and what year was it that you started there?
2: Uh it was June we we started June 1st of 2020. Oh
1: man. So you started like right in the heat of it in our nation.
2: Yeah, it was right it was right in the middle of the pandemic. I think it was it was around the time that George Floyd was was murdered. And yeah, and so it was like I you know I remember when we left Texas, I didn't get to say goodbye. In person to anybody at the church, because you know we were all still hunkering down, we were all sheltering at home to stop the spread of covid and and so I sent out an email to people to let them know that I was leaving and then when we got to Muskogee, I didn't really see anyone <laughs> other than Kendall, who was the minister and then the church secretary and the uh, executive minister.
0: I think something that was interesting I remember is Muskogee is a a fairly diverse community. Is that right? Yeah. So that strategic op they did was really looking at how the—well, I don't know, I'm asking. Was it really looking at how the church then could serve that diverse community better?
2: Yes. The way that it was explained to me is that, you know, you have a congregation that is largely white, largely older, and largely wealthy— in a community that is largely not white, or at least more diverse than the congregation itself, that is fairly young. There are a lot of young families in Muskogee that are not as wealthy as your average church member. They kind of identified those things and said, okay, so if this congregation is going to grow and reach people here in Muskogee, we have to not look like what we look like now, because the majority of the people in Muskogee don't look like us in one way or another. Muskogee, historically, was a town that was all Black, or at least majority Black. I don't know the specifics of the history, but I know that at some point, uh, white people moved in and kind of took over. And then you also have, too, you know, we're on on native land. If you're familiar with the McGirt ruling um, that gave more authority and power back to natives in terms of the land that they owned and how they could manage that land. The McGirt ruling affects the land that that I live on, that my house is built on, uh, because we're in Muskogee Creek country. So
1: where you guys were located or are located, your former church is located, is really like the intersectionality of so many things. It sounds on the surface like kind of the dream of what all of us were hoping yeah. and wanting to be a part of, as we're like divesting from predominantly yeah. white colonist Christianity, right? So that, as we move further into your story, that's that's something that I, I was kind of heartbroken by just the fact that, as we heard in Kendall's story too, that it really seemed like on the surface, like this is it, this is the start, they're starting, they're trying which is so much more than so many other churches.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean and not not just that they were trying, but you almost couldn't help but try. Yeah. Because you know they there's a there's a college here, Baycone, which is a historically a native driven college. And Baycone brings in a lot of students and the majority of those students are not white. And Baycone was right next to the church. And so the church just, I mean, it's, you have to, right. You have to reach out to those students and offer to feed, like we fed them meals on, on Wednesday evenings. Uh, cause you know, we knew that Bacon was going through some struggles and they were basically given like $10 a day for food. They didn't have a cafeteria. They were just given $10 a day allowance for food. And so we were like, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to feed the students. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. 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 We fed those students, and and we brought them in. And I don't I don't know if Kendall shared this, but you know, part of the history of of Muskogee is that these uh, largely minority students were coming to this church and falling in love with the people there, and falling in love with that place, and wanting to share their culture and their perspective. And uh, time and time again, they were just kind of told that you can do that, but only within the space that we allow you to have, Uh, that we're not going to make that part of the makeup of this congregation. If you want to assimilate to the way we do things, you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, But if you want us to kind of take you in, that's not really going to happen.
1: So heartbreaking. What were your relationships like with staff members people in the congregation. How was that transition for your family?
2: Yeah, so it was, you know, it was like like we talked about already. It was in the middle of COVID. And so it was really weird at first because we have elders or shepherds. You know, we have what we what they called their pastoral leadership team, which was made up of the elders and all the ministers. But we were all equal on that pastoral leadership team. We all had a vote, we all had a say in what was going on. And so like that group, I was really close with. And so that was myself, that was Kendall, that was our executive minister. And then when I first started, I think there were, our executive minister was also considered an elder, and then there were four other men who were elders. Starting out, those were really the only relationships that I had. And the executive minister really liked me, really wanted us to be close, we on paper were very similar. He had also gone to Oklahoma Christian. He had also been a youth minister. He'd grown up in the Churches of Christ. But as I found out, the more I got to know him, that paper similarity is really all we had. His views on on some things were really not in line with who I am and where the church was saying that they wanted to go. And so Kendall and I really were the ones who became really close you know we started meeting in each other's office just at random times throughout the day we had people who would come in there was one guy who would come in almost every single day to play basketball in our auditorium which was also a gym and Kendall and i would sit in there and Kendall would be talking with the guy playing basketball we would just start having these really great and deep conversations about life, about God, about the church, uh, about race, just, you know, about anything. And along that time there was another there was another elder and he and Kendall and I would sit and just talk about stuff. And I, I remember I remember one time, I don't know if you've seen this video where Bethel the church, declared that racism was over in America. With like the Gandalf
1: staff when he was like, yes, er, yes. you, like you the, shall not it's pass. This wo- yeah.
2: <laughs> yes, it's, it's this woman, she's got this staff. It's like all these leaders from Bethel and then this woman and she's holding this staff and she goes, you know, and, and Gandalf spoke with authority. And so I, everyone grabbed the staff and speak with authority. And like as a group, they're all banging the staff saying, you shall not pass. <laughs> <laughs> and, but but Kendall, Kendall and this elder and I were watching this and just dying laughing at it. And we were like, well, what are we going to do now? Because it's should over, we, right? Should we they, get a staff? just ended it. <laughs> like, <laughs> there were there were a lot of moments like that early on that were like just so encouraging and you know lighthearted but but also kind of deep at the same time one of the first things that I did was you know, I texted parents and said, "Hey, I know that we can't meet right now because it's COVID, but what are some snacks that your kids like and I'm going to go to Walmart and I'm going to buy some snacks and I'm going to come over and drop them off on your porch and I'll stand in the porch and you stand in your house and we'll be social distance, but you know, I can I can say hi and and meet you and meet your students and and I I did that and that was a a great time for me it just Getting to know the students and getting to know their parents and getting to know some of the members. Some of them I got to know on Facebook, and that wasn't so great when I saw that they were posting some things about QAnon and 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 other things. But you know, it just it it kind of showed us that hey, there's some work that we have to do here. But it felt like at the time, anyways, that the leadership was all moving in one direction. And that that work was was going to be difficult, but we had a lot of folks who were ready to do it.
0: I mean, that kind of sounds like an ideal scenario when we think about it, right? Where you're you're working together yeah. on the ground, diverse leadership team. I mean, I you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it wasn't really that diverse, right? Kindle was the only person right. of color on staff, but still. I mean, you know there there was a there was a bond there to say there's some hard work in front of us, but we're going to do it. We're going to do that hard work, and I mean that's ideal. I could imagine for you. I mean, how did you feel? Like, w- what were you feeling during that time? Like, with your spirit, with your relationship with God? Like, how was all that kind of that impacting you?
2: So those those that was really like in the first six months, and I mean, like it was incredible. Because I, I came from, and I don't I don't want to disparage the congregation in Texas, you know, because there, there are wonderful people who were there, and I think it was more just a culture shock than anything else because it was, I mean, it was, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, and this was Southeast Texas, like right next to Louisiana there. You know, they considered themselves Cajun, so it was just really, really different and, and, and difficult for us to connect. And so, you know, that those first 6 months of being back in Oklahoma and being at Muskogee um man they were just incredible you know it was kind of like god this is everything that we prayed for this is a church that you know it's not perfect because there is no perfect church but they're they're working and they're wanting And so I was really excited. My wife was a little less excited. I think she saw the potential, but she had just been so beat down by some of the things that had happened in Texas that she was a little more hesitant and a little more on guard, which ended up being a bit of a blessing in the end. But I was excited and I was ready to go and was probably a little too headstrong and and maybe a little too zealous. But it looked, again, you know, like this is the place. This is the moment. This is what... This is what we've been praying for. This is what we're here for.
1: At one point during this, you guys got tasked with how are we going to implement this report ops thing, right? Was that tasked to you and Kendall specifically? Or was it kind of supposed to be everybody, but you and Kendall were the only ones that worked on it?
2: Yeah, so it was kind of supposed to be everyone mm-hmm. and it was really supposed to be elder led because in the Churches of Christ the ministers are we're the paid employees. Like we have power, but it's more implicit than explicit. Like we don't really have the power to say we want to do this and then this happens. The the elders can do that, but not really not really the ministers. And so it it should have been elder led. But a lot of it was kind of falling on Kendall and I as, you know, the faces of everything, because we were still largely remote in terms of our Sunday morning services. And so, or or streaming, I guess, is the term that everyone was using. So we were still streaming our Sunday morning services. And so Kendall and I were the only ones that people really saw. And so it was kind of falling on, on us to do a lot of these things. Uh, And then in, And one move that at the time um, seemed like a good idea, but as I look back, it seems like maybe that was kind of the beginning of of all the, the drama and everything that was to follow the elders had kind of decided, okay, so we need to talk about this in some way. I think this was right after George Floyd was was murdered. They're like, we need to address these things. We need to introduce the congregation to this strat and then snoo direction for the congregation. And so we're going to air a sermon series by a guy named Rick Ashley, who is the pastor of the Hills Church in North Richmond Hills, Texas, which at one point in time was the place in the churches of Christ. And Rick did a fairly decent sermon series called Let's Talk About Race, you know, and he doesn't just talk about how racism is wrong and then kind of leaves it there. Like he went into, here's how racism, is, racism has played out in America. And they talked about the red line laws. And he talked with people who shared with with Rick their opinion on police officers and why they don't always think so highly of police officers. That sermon series ended with a panel of people coming to the hills and talking about race in America. And Kendall and I decided that it'd be a better thing for us if we ended the series with a panel of people from our congregation. And so Kendall was on that panel. I was on that panel. So from everyone that we had there, we had black, we had white, we had Hispanic, and we had Native representation on that panel, and we were all talking about how that sermon series had impacted us, and our experiences of race in America, and what the Church had done, hadn't done, should do, could do, to help bring about change. And And Kendall and I got done with that, you know, on Sunday morning. And I remember him and I talking that next Monday that we were in in the office and just going, Man, this is this is such a good start. Like, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. There's still some some people in the congregation who we may have to work to change their minds, to help them see what God is already doing. But what a great moment this has been. And I think that very same day, we had a pastoral leadership team meeting, and Kendall and I were going in with, you know, what a great start. And we get there and we start having this meeting, and it's very clear that everyone else on the pastoral leadership team, instead of thinking, what a great start, they're thinking, okay, we did it. We talked about it. And and now that we've talked about it, you know, let's— Let's move on to the next thing box uh, check we're, we're done yeah. we can check we can, the yeah, box
0: right we can we can check off wow. that box. what did you feel when they said that? what were you feeling thinking
2: it was it was disheartening for sure, and it was kind of a a little slap in the face that not not like a slap in the face that like oh okay, now I'm awake now I understand you know where the where the traps are for this. Prior to this, too, we had been doing a Be the Bridge group at the church, and one of the elders was a part of that. We had a good mix of people from the congregation that were a part of that as well. And around the time that we started airing that Let's Talk About Race sermon series, our Be the Bridge group wrapped up. The the elder who was in that group had been attending some kind of class that was basically called Whiteness 101, and he was talking with me about how he and I needed to teach that Whiteness 101 class to our church because it's, it really just kind of teaches white people about our privilege in a way that doesn't say privilege because, you know, that can sometimes make us as white people, you know, kind of like raises our hairs. Like, <laughs> Makes us get I, on I Facebook I'm not privileged. start commenting. Right. <laughs> yes. So, we you know we had had that and we had had the series and we were having these conversations and then we go into this meeting and it's like okay we're done it was we've got feedback now from this a series that we have done and these other things and maybe we need to rethink this we need to and it was it was really our executive minister who started pushing this and he was saying you know I really think that. We need to pray. We need to pray and ask God for guidance to see if this is really what God wants us to be doing. And he wanted us to read this book, and I don't even remember what the book was called now, but it was very it was very short. It was very simple. It was very formulaic. It was kind of like, if you pray in this way, then God will bless you with all these things because I prayed in this way and look at how God has grown my ministry and my family and my work. And I remember Kendall and I just talking and being like, this book is trash. Like, here we are, the lead. I mean, like, I'm sure it's good for someone in their journey, but, you know, we are the leaders of a church. Like, if we're, not that we have to, like, bust open N.T. Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God, you know, 700 pages on just... Resurrection, but you know, we should at least be reading Surprised by Hope. You know, like we should at least be reading something with some depth and some encouragement. And and I remember I just remember Kendall saying, This is the first step to stopping everything that we that the Stratop said we needed to work for. That this is how kind of the end begins is with going back to prayer. Because we're going to pray about it forever, and the only thing that's going to change is that we're no longer going to be moving forward with what we said we wanted to do. And he ended up being right. He ended up being very, very right.
0: And I think, too, it's important to remember that Kendall had been there for already 10 years when this had happened, right? Yes. So he had had— Yes. I mean, he, he had enough um, weight in that room and experience— his voice definitely should have been listened to, especially because he was probably more strategic more part of that
2: uh strategic op that went on yeah so and that was cause that was that was one thing too is that the executive minister was always given duties as part of the strategic operation and would oftentimes just straight up say, "I'm not going to do that like i don't I don't want to do that i I'm not interested in that, so I'm not going to do that." I mean, like, I didn't know that until several months later. But Kendall knew all of this. It started a time of tension. Like I remember we sat in we sat in a because so we had like PLT meetings, which which was our pastoral leadership team meetings, but then we also had staff meetings. And the staff meetings were myself, Kendall, our executive minister, and our secretary. And we had staff meetings every week. I remember sitting in a staff meeting and the executive minister And I I might be getting this a little wrong, but I think it's mostly right. The executive minister started praying about tension that he felt amongst the staff, which was the first time that anything had been said about tension amongst the staff. And so after the prayer, Kendall was like, and this is one of the things that I love about Kendall is Kendall doesn't let anything slide. Like if you say, like if you if you try to do something that's like petty like that, like Kendall's gonna call you out on it because you know, he's gonna just look at you and just be like, say with your chest, if you're gonna come at me, come at me. Kendall just kind of like stopped and was like, what? What's this about tension? What kind of tension do you feel? And and so the executive minister was talking, and really what it came down to is that. Kendall and I were getting very close. The executive minister and myself were not getting very close, even though he thought we would. I mean, like, I remember when I got hired, the executive minister said to me that he was looking forward to a lifelong friendship and that he was going to be present at my oldest son, who was one at the time. He was going to be present at my oldest son's wedding. In his mind, you know, we were going to be best buds. And Kendall and I were becoming best buds and the executive minister and I were not. And I think the tension that he was feeling was that he was kind of losing control of what he thought was going to happen when I came on staff.
1: Which, in one hand, it's like sweet that he wants to be committed to you and do ministry with you. On the other hand, it's it's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> it is. And that's
2: just like that earnestness is like you said like sometimes that earnestness can be sweet. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, people who are dating, like you, you I don't know if you guys have heard the joke that there's a fine line between a stalker and a boyfriend. Yeah. You know, like like one one of them you're welcoming the attention. The other one you don't want the the <laughs> attention. And I feel it's the same way with that earnestness. That earnestness can be very sweet if it's reciprocated. And I just didn't know this guy well enough. And I'm, you know.
1: And it takes relational work. Like that, you need to have build equity. You're still new. At this point, I would consider you still new to the staff, even during this tension conversation. So fast forward from he's standing at your son's wedding to.
2: Right. (laughs) You're hearing
1: that he's feeling tension because. You're not his best friend, you're Kendall's best friend.
2: Right. And like and I wouldn't even say that like I was Kendall's best friend. Like we were just really good work friends yeah. at at that, you know. Yeah, you know, cuz this was I'd known everyone in that room for 6 months <laughs> and vice versa. You know, they'd only know me for 6 months. Right. Yes, Kendall and I had a very quick and fast connection that I don't think that's anything to be threatened by, but he was.
0: If somebody had told me like when I first met them, that they were going to be at my son's wedding or what? I would, I would run the other way so quickly. <laughs> <I> would, <laughs> but that's my what is what? Can I say? I mean, I'm an introverted. Yeah. Is that the enneagram? I don't use that a lot. But what am
2: I, John? I'm a five, right?
1: You're a five. Yeah. I feel like it tracks.
2: <laughs> I would, I would run. I'm, a, I'm a five, and I, and I I'm that. a five, and I just didn't know <laughs> how, what how to say to that. Like I'm just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a really it's just very fo- like very forward. <laughs> I can see it now.
0: I'm picturing in my head as we're talking, Ian, like somebody saying that to you, and like, oh my gosh, what do you even do?
1: I would pay <laughs> right, just... money I do not have to watch that happen to Jay. <laughs> like I would love to see just stand there and just watch uh, Jay's face.
0: I, I don't even know
2: what I'd say. <laughs> oh my gosh. We digress. I
1: feel like you would
0: be Rob, dumbfounded. I, mean, I probably
2: yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also I'm also a five, and I was just kind of like standing there like a deer in headlights, <laughs> and so I think that that's probably your reaction too. It's just like, how do you process this thing that just immediate happened? Closeness, <laughs> six months in.
1: What's so fascinating is up until this point, it's like, what was the purpose? Was the purpose a desire for a relationship? Which it could be. Like a desire for relationship and brotherhood and ministry? Or was the desire to have sway and pull in direction decisions?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing about this executive minister is that he just kind of looked like everybody's kind of somewhat awkward dad who's always in a baseball cap and T-shirts and cargo shorts, you know, and the guy that everybody loves, the guy that nobody has anything. To like
1: middle-aged Oklahoma dad, white dad.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that he put on that persona to hide the fact that he's actually very calculated that everything that he does, he says with intention and lots of forethought and like he is moving pieces on a board to push people either where he wants them or into corners so that they have to react in ways that he can game out before they respond. I think that was one of the things that he was trying to do with me just in terms of the, the friendship thing is that I'm sure to some extent he did want to be my friend and he wanted to have a good relationship. But I think also part of that is that if he and I are good friends, then I'm more likely to listen to what he's saying and go the direction that he wants. You know, he came up to me one time and told me that the the Baptist church had just lost their youth minister or their youth pastor, and that a lot of people from Muskogee had left Muskogee Church of Christ and gone to the Baptist church at one point because their youth program was so wonderful. And he was like, but we've got a great new youth minister now here at Muskogee. And so you need to go and you need to get our flock back. It was kind of another one of those moments where I was just like, oh, okay. And like, I remember talking to Kendall about it and going, so like when the executive minister says those things to me, is that like something that I'm supposed to do? Or because like that has nothing to do with what we've talked about me being here for. And Kendall just was like, I would just ignore that. <laughs> like It's, it's also not, a weird, you know, like, kind of that's just, that's just
0: flex to be like, hey, go get yes. this. Like, you gotta get it back to our yes.
2: side. Well, and really what it was is I found out that he was talking about one family in particular, and that this family was related to a former elder of Muscogee Church of Christ who also happened to be a very wealthy member of the church. And so... I wonder if that member had kind of bent the executive minister's ear a little bit. And so, you know, that was the string that was being pulled there. Um, Money.
1: And it got to a point, it seems, where you were having to speak up. You're like, okay, well, I can't be slow to speak about this. There's active harm happening. Yeah. Can you walk us through that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So, so I mean, like all these things had kind of happened. And, and there's this is not the timeline in which they happened. But they, they did happen before this one big event. We were in a PLT meeting one night. And at this point, we had lost elders. And so it was just myself, Kendall the executive minister, the elder who had wanted to teach the Whiteness 101 class and was starting to pull back on those things, and one other elder. So there were just five of us. And this was a very contentious meeting from the beginning. One of the elders, the one that wanted to teach the Whiteness 101 class, one of the first things that I remember is the executive minister and Kendall kind of got into it a little bit. And this elder just like stood up and grabbed a dry erase marker and threw it on the floor and just screaming about how he was so tired of all this fighting and it needed to stop. And like the only thing like that's seared into my mind because I remember watching the marker go one way and the cap go the other way and then going to like, like, and then when he stormed out of the room, I got up to go find the marker and put it back together and I couldn't find the cap. Like I was just looking, like I just, and so, like, I just went and set it down on the whiteboard and went and sat. down. Were you down, confused? It was... Did that
1: feel like a like yeah. an
2: escalation? Yes, they were having some disagreements, but I didn't feel like it was that big of a deal. And then for this other elder to kind of like blow up like that, I was just kind of sitting there. I don't know if you've seen the the new show yes. Jury Duty yes. about it sure the was awesome. I was I was sitting there like Ronald, just <laughs> kind of like, is this real life? Like should somebody go after him? I didn't I didn't understand like what had happened and then eventually eventually this elder comes back in and he goes, you know, I'm I'm sorry. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm just I am just so tired of us and we are a team and we need to be coming together and we need to stop all this infighting and it was at that moment that the executive minister decided to speak and he said and he just looked over at Kindle and he said, "You know, Kindle, I really, you really have got to forgive me and trust me. Like you have just, you have got to, you can't, you can't keep doing this. You have got to forgive me and trust me. And he said, you are tearing this church," and went like, he didn't even get to finish the word. And I said, no, no, no. Like that is not, that is not how this works. And I looked at him, I said, yo, you you don't just demand forgiveness from someone. You don't just demand trust from someone. Like forgiveness is given out of the grace of the heart of the forgiver. Like you don't just get to go to him and say, Well, you have to forgive me and now. Did you know so that we can move forward? Did you forward. even know
1: what he was trying to get forgiveness for?
2: No, I I didn't. Yeah. I, I found out later. I found out later that that the executive minister had told Kendall that in the executive minister's words, we want to help black people, but we don't want them to join our church, which is a really horrible thing to say to someone, but it's a very horrible thing to say to the black lead minister of your congregation who has to get up and preach to a church of largely white people every Sunday. And I remember looking or looking at him too and saying, I know Kendall and I'm certain that he has forgiven you. But when it comes to trust, like you just you can't demand that from someone. That's not how trust works, that you have to earn that back. And he kept on going, trying to say, Kendall, you just gotta forgive me. And I and and I spoke up again. I was like, that you can't just keep demanding this. And at one point the executive minister looked at me and said, What are you, his lawyer? And and I said, "No, but I'm not going to sit here and and let you say these things to him when it's not right when that's not how this works, and you you know you can't just look at someone and decide that well you know i I've wronged you, but now's your turn. you need to you know I've apologized for wronging you and and now you need to forgive me.
0: How did he respond
2: to that when you said that to him? It did not go over well. There was no resolution to anything that I had said, no resolution to anything that Kendall had said or the executive minister had said or the elder who threw the marker had said. And we just kind of left. But the fallout of that was that Kendall and I had one more meeting with the PLT, and it was at this meeting that Kendall and I were told that we were not to preach, teach, pray, give an announcement about, give a communion thought about anything that had to do with race, reconciliation, justice, injustice, oppression without the elders' prior approval of those things.
0: What did did they give you any reason why you couldn't?
2: I mean, we we kind of knew in background that there were some people who felt like we were talking about those things too much. Like at this point, we'd already done the Let's Talk About Race series. Kendall had talked about some things. I preached a sermon on the Magnificat, which how do you not talk about ending oppression when you're talking about the Magnificat? I mean, Mary sings about it. You know, we had talked about those things, but... We also knew that there were some people in the church that didn't appreciate that we were focusing on them maybe all the time in their minds.
0: Do you think you could have looped in, or I guess, could the executive pastor be included in that as well? Was he uncomfortable with all of these topics? Oh,
2: he absolutely was. He was not going to come out and say that, because who's going to come out and say, I don't want to talk about those things? You sound like a horrible person if you say that. And it was a horrible thing to request of Kendall and myself. And then that was also the last time that Kendall and I had a combined meeting with the PLT. The PLT was supposed to be the ministers and the elders and everybody has a vote and everybody has a say and it's all equal and everybody shares the load. And after that meeting where we were told not to talk about those things, they started meeting with Kendall and myself individually. So I would meet with them, and then Kendall would meet with them.
1: And can you give us a refresher of what PLT stands for?
2: Pastoral Leadership Team.
1: Okay. And did they tell you they were going to start doing it separately with you and Kendall?
2: No. It was just like they said that they wanted to meet with me individually, and they wanted to meet with Kendall individually, and then that was the format moving forward. Is that
1: not weird when you guys are supposed to have equal say, and you weren't included in that
2: decision? It's very weird, and it was very clear that we no longer had equal say in things, but we were never told that we were losing our equal say in things. You know, we would have been outnumbered three to two if it had been put to a vote by the pastoral leadership team. We were never informed that we would no longer be in meetings together. The only meetings that Kendall and I were in from then on were staff meetings. Those were largely nothing.
0: Okay. So as you have these one-on-one meetings, can you explain to us what is your relation Well, first off, how set the stage like how long have you been at the church when you start having these one-on-one meetings? How is your relationship with Kindle going based on the, you know, what's happening in these meetings? And then what's going on in these meetings? These one-on-ones.
2: So, I want to say that I've been at the church somewhere around the 8 to 9 10 months mark at this point. Kindle and I are I mean, like we're work, we're planning sermon series together. We're planning worship together. I'm asking him for advice on things daily. I think by this point, we had already taken a trip to Oklahoma Christian because a professor there had asked Kendall to speak to his class about racial reconciliation in the church. And Kendall was like, well, I'm not going without Ian. And so like we had already taken a trip to Oklahoma City together and spent, the whole day together and gotten some really good food in Oklahoma City and you know which all good relationships just get better around good food and so Kendall and I were just getting closer and closer hanging out all the time texting all the time this is also around the time that GameStop was like rocketing because people kept buying it for some reason and so Kendall and I became like amateur day traders and just really you know becoming good Very good friends throughout all of this. And part of that was that we would talk about our meetings before and after the meeting. We'd get together and say, okay, this is what I'm going to say in my meeting. What are you going to say in your meeting? Just to kind of see that we were on the same page. And then we'd come back and compare notes and go, okay, they asked me about this and this is what I told them. And and really, those meetings were mostly micromanaging, just kind of like, what have you done in the last however long it's been since we've talked with you, and what do you have coming up? There was no big picture. It was all just kind of, what is your lane, and what are you doing to stay in your lane, and can we help you in any way stay in your lane?
0: And was your lane like youth ministry, or was it—
2: Yes. Okay. Yes.
0: And not talking about anything to do with racial reconciliation.
2: Also that, yes. Yeah. I was talking about Sunday mornings. I was talking about Wednesday nights. I was talking about all the things that I had planned that COVID failed because we had outbreak. I mean, I'd seriously had like three or four pretty big, pretty fun events planned that were shut down. One of them was shut down by weather, but the others were shut down because somebody got COVID. And we had to all take our 10 days to make sure that we didn't have it. And that meant that we couldn't do the thing that we had planned on doing. And so I never really got a chance to start because when things were going well, we were still streaming services mostly. And then when things started to go poorly was when people were coming back and it took a lot out of me. And so I'm not going to lie. I, I was not the best youth minister for the last six months that I was there because we were fighting these battles behind the scenes, and it was taking a lot out of me. And then there's also just the the demoralization that comes from being excited about summer camp and then, oh, well, no, COVID. Being excited about a retreat, oh, well, no, we got COVID. Just It's kind of like we were taking hit after hit after hit.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, what was your youth ministry like? And you just kind of answered that. And that makes sense. Like you don't, like youth ministry, I've never been a youth minister, but I imagine that it has a lot to do with interaction and you're limited because of the COVID restrictions.
2: I, I got creative with some things. Like when the, kids were, when the kids were virtual still at school, I would be like, okay, if you're going to have a virtual day, come up to the church and have virtual day at the church. So at least in that way, we can, you know, form some bonds and and hang out. And we still had Wednesday night services that were going for Wednesday night services started out being very poorly attended. And then I just canceled them entirely for a month and went back to the drawing board for what they could be and should look like. And then when we came back after that month off, which was around December, or January, we were running 15 kids every single night, which is the top end of the kids that were actively members of the congregation. It was a slow start, but given everything else that was going on, I thought it was very encouraging and it was building towards something. And then my, my, so my wife had been pregnant for, for all this time, like pretty much as soon as we got back to Oklahoma, she got pregnant with our second son. He was born on June 8th. So I I was there for a full year and then took off. They had a, an employee's handbook that kind of lined out that you know, I got so many days of vacation time. And I also got a week of leave for pregnancy. And so I, I had saved a week of vacation and then I had the week of leave. And I took two weeks off for when our son was born, and which turned out to be a blessing because the first week of that we spent in the hospital because his, his lungs were weak. And so he spent a week in the NICU Which sounds more serious than, I mean, he was, he was a behemoth in, in the NICU. Like he, he was eight pounds, four ounces when he was born and he was in the NICU and was still like eight pounds. The baby next to him was seriously like two pounds and, and tiny and, and Graham just looked monstrous next to all the other babies that were in there, but still he was in the NICU. So it was still like a serious, like shock. To us because we had a kid before and we just took him home after like two days, you know, and Graham had to stay for a week because he was still struggling to breathe. You know, we took him home and I had another week at home trying to find a rhythm now of parents of two kids and figuring all that stuff out. And then my, you know, my two weeks came up and I went back to the office on a Tuesday because we were off on Mondays. And I went back to the office on a Tuesday and I was getting ready for summer camp because it was going to be later that month. And so I was trying to make sure that I hadn't missed any deadlines. while I was out, it got to be about 11 o'clock and the executive minister said, Hey, can you come into my office real quick? And I, I walked in and it was the executive minister and one of the elders, not the one that threw the marker, the other, the other elder and they they were asking me questions about what I was doing and and so like you know in my mind like I've been gone for 2 weeks you know they just want to know what I'm up to what I've been doing what's going on how's the summer going to look and so I like I'm telling them we're doing summer camp we're doing this here's the curriculum that I'm teaching and I get through all of those things and they say okay uh we're going to have to let you go kind of kind of like the you know I'm going to be at your son's wedding and all the other things like I was just kind of like okay you know, I mean, like I, I had I knew because we had talked about this in all kinds of meetings that the budget was not in a great place, and that they were looking at being like thirty thousand dollars over budget. And you know, like you cut my salary, and then they're actually going to be under budget. I I was never told why I was let go. I always, you know i I gave them the cover of it was a budgetary thing. You know, just COVID made things so terrible, but. I, kind of, I don't think that that was—I think that was a thing, you know, but I don't think that that was the only reason why I was I was let go. But what was really awful in all of that, aside from the fact that I'm being let go with a two-week-old at home, is that I remember the executive minister looking at me and saying— And, you know, know, like, you know, if, if you stay, I'm sure you can find something that you can do in town or, or, you know, if, if you're, if you guys are going to move, the the real estate market is really hot right now. It's a great time. It's a great time to sell a house. And I was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, it is. You talk about not reading the room. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like, and they were telling me like, you know, we're going to give you two months of severance and. You know, just wish you all the best and everything. And I said, okay, thanks. And you're thinking, like, how am I going to
1: go tell my wife that's two weeks postpartum that...
2: Yeah, that I don't have a job. I don't have a job and we're
1: losing our community, everything.
2: Yeah. And so, like, I looked at... And, like, this is... I don't even know why I did this because I just been let go so what does it matter but like I looked at both of them and I said is it okay if I go home today and just don't come back and they were like yeah sure <laughs>
0: and so
2: like I and so I did like I w- I went yeah. home I mean you and, just got let
1: go so you're allowed to leave
2: yeah I was like I want to be here anymore <laughs> and so like I went I went home and I came in and like I remember we had we had friends over, cause again, you know, new baby, right? So Candace had a, a woman who is like a second mother to her, you know, kind of over at our house to to visit and see the baby. And and I came home and Candace was like, Why are you here? And I said, Hey, let's go upstairs real quick. And and then I told her, I was like, Hey, I I just got let go, but it's gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be fine. Like we're going to, and she was like, well, what, what do you mean? Everything's going to be fine. Like, cause you know, she's the, and and she'll tell you this, I'm not saying anything she won't say, but she's the, she's the worrier in, in the family. And I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to what we're, what I'm going to do, but I've got two months to get it figured out and everything is going to be okay. And you know, in hindsight, that was like, everything has not been smooth since then, but you know, everything has more or less been okay. And man, I just, I can't, I can't stress enough what a blessing it was, even with all the negatives that have come with that, like it, what a blessing it has been to be removed from that space and not have to worry about, is someone going to read this Facebook post? Is me like, gunning for them is someone going to stumble upon my my Twitter which I don't have anymore but did at the time and and read my tweets and and you know complain to the to the elders about me because I'm tweeting that Brianna Taylor deserves justice or or whatever it may be um and so like it was just it was just a huge like I I, I was let go and so there was a weight on my shoulders but I also felt like a weight had been lifted from my shoulders.
0: I totally get that. That totally makes sense in my head. Like that idea of uh, like, it's almost like you knew, it's almost like you knew, like in your gut right now that you're on the way out, it's like, man, I finally just don't have to deal with this shit anymore. <laughs> in this place. yes. Like I totally yes. get that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What, Yeah. how did you break the news to those that were at the church, like Kendall, that you were friends with?
2: Yeah. I think I called Kindle. I think I called Kindle and told him and he was like, What? And I because I remember saying, Oh, so you didn't know about this. And he was like, No. And so like, you know, I, I, I called Kendall and, and told him. And then I, I I honestly I didn't really tell a whole lot of people after that because I, I don't I don't I don't know why, honestly. We were just like regrouping. Yeah.
1: It's so hard in ministry jobs when you're like go. Hey, I've been there. Because, like, there's so many things you're like, I don't want to sow dissension, right? You're, like, f- afraid of the church's reputation. And then you're also like, this is awkward. Like, you're our community. What do I do now? That's what's so hard in so many of the situations that we we share about, I think, is, like, Churches often aren't making good statements or even sometimes statements at all. It's just this nebulous. Yeah. I don't know if your former church told people or when they told people our former church. I don't they didn't tell people till like December. They sent
2: out an email. It was like January.
0: I think it was an email, Jonna. I think it
1: was a long long time time in. Yeah.
0: Man,
2: there was an email, Candace reminded me recently that there was an email that had gone out that had said something to the effect of, like, I've been relieved of my duties. And then, because I, like, I called Kendall the Sunday morning after I was let go, and I was like, so what'd they say? And he's like, they didn't really say anything. You know, they're just kind of like, Ian's gone, but the youth group will live on. Long live the youth group, you know, and just kind of kept moving forward. And and I did hear from some people in the immediate aftermath and they were just like we don't know what happened, but we're so sorry and and I was just like I don't know what happened either. <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to air the church's dirty laundry when those people call me too because I'm I'm a believer that the truth is always going to get out. At in one point or another, the truth is going to get out. And so I want to conduct myself as ethically, as positively, as, you know, whatever you want to say, Lee, as I can, that no one can say that I was scheming in the background, trying to turn people against, you know, like I just, I had been let go and that's what the church wanted. And if people wanted to ask questions about that or inquire of the leadership about that. That's what I would, that's what I encourage them to do. Like they would call me and they'd be like, so what, what was going on? And I would just say, I, you know, I don't really know. I think that's a good question for the elders. You know, I think that's something that you should, you should address with them. I don't know if that ever happened. You know, the only thing that I know is that I was relieved of my duties and that the youth group continued on after I was gone. Wow. So if you
0: can, walk us through, bring us up to today. And specifically, we'd love to know. Well, one, I'd love to really know, like, what if like in hindsight now, you're, you know, over, I guess, two and a half years removed from this job, like, in hindsight, like, what, what do you think? Like, how do you think about your role? How do you think about your time at the church? How are you doing today, personally, professionally, spiritually? How's your family doing? What does that look like for you?
2: Yeah, so I mean it's a it's all a mixed bag, really. I still struggle to go to church most days. I go more now than I did when I was like in the immediate aftermath of all of that. You know, Kendall has started a church since then and I let him know very early on that as much as I loved him and would love to be a part of a plant, I cannot be on staff of a church plant right now. And so, you know, like I'm, I'm there, but you know, I'm the guy that shows up two or three Sundays out of the month and, you know, you don't really rely on him for anything because, you know, he may not be there. I did start going to therapy, which has been wonderful. I have a wonderful therapist that I see basically weekly and she deals a lot with trauma. And in my first time there, you know, I just kind of like dumped on her everything that had gone on in my life. And she just was like... Okay, so you've got some trauma. Let's get to work. And, and that's been good. I tried to be a freelance writer, which, you know, hey, if you're looking for a freelance writer and you're listening to this podcast, I have a website. You know, by the grace of God, I was able to get us from June to September on severance and freelance and wonderful friends uh, from Twitter and real life who just threw money at us and said, here, you're not saying no, take this. Like October rolled around and things started to dry up. And I had friends who were who were teaching uh, at, at several of the local schools in, in the Muskogee district. And I, I started teaching sixth grade English. Uh, and I did that all last year. Well, from October to the end of the year. And if Oklahoma paid their teachers more, I would continue teaching for a very long time but it's difficult to support a family of four on, on just the salary of a teacher. And so I just accepted a position as a claim specialist, which will let me work from home. Uh, It's more pay. And my therapist and I have been talking about what it looks like to not live in your purpose, like to know that your purpose is ministry and what that looks like and how you get back to it. And so, you know. Job-wise, I'm also taking classes at uh, Grand Canyon University to get my master's uh, to become a licensed professional counselor. And I think that is going to be the way that I can hopefully start aligning with my purpose a little bit more uh, going forward in the future. That's awesome.
1: I love that so much. I know it's so hard to feel like you're like created to be living into certain giftings and just not be able to it just it feels like such a big like a deep loss so I'm really excited for that to get hopefully redeemed in your life
2: I I think it already has Mm. and even even just in my time teaching because it's it's really just kind of shown me like there are other ways for me to make an impact on the lives of 6th through 12th graders. That you know my my work as a teacher is ministry. You know, I have to prepare them for the state test in English, but I'm also feeding them when they come to school without food, you know, without having had breakfast or taking them out into the hall and asking them what's going on because they're not acting how they normally act and you know hearing what's happening in their life and just being the adult that is listening to them at that point in time. Um and so there's some ways in which that's already been redeemed. But yeah, I I think becoming a counselor is kind of that next step. You know, I was talking with a professor of mine from from Oklahoma Christian. He was at he was asking me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm I'm reaching out to you because I need somebody to write me a reference letter to join the the program at, at Grand Canyon University. And and he said, you know, if I was if i was 30 years younger and had been a minister i would be becoming a counselor too just with the way that some that the way that the way that church is going right now i i think that's the move i'd be making too uh and so that was that was really great to hear too
1: yeah i think that's so beautiful well ian i am i'm personally sad that you're not in a church because we need pastors like you in churches. But I also get it. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I think it's really awesome that you still have like this ability to attend a church when your heart and your soul can handle it. And next episode, we're going to have you back with Kendall. Yes. And we're going to be talking to you guys together and have a little bit of a joint conversation about what it looked like to experience this from both your different perspectives and the different ways that you guys held privilege and how that played into your friendship. I'm excited for that. I feel like you both have kind of said like, we're we're friends, we love each other, but we haven't even fully talked about this together yet. Like fully sat down and like no, had the I, conversation. Uh, yeah.
2: No, we haven't. Like we've, we've talked about it in bits and pieces, but yeah, we've not just like sat down and And it's been like, whoa, bro, this happened to us. Right, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I just want to say thank you personally for sharing your story. I know it's not easy to think through this stuff. Your family has gone through so much. That was so painful for you guys. And I'm just... I'm grateful for your integrity and your character and your willingness to say hard things when you need to, and to put the cat back on the marker if it needs to happen. (laughs) Everybody needs the person in the room that's going to put the cat back on the marker. So I appreciate you. I do want to know if
0: there's anything else you'd want to share about your time at the church or if you'd want to speak to the church as a whole, uh, the global church or the local church, anything that you'd like to share from the experiences you've been through.
2: Yeah, my therapist asked me that too when I told her that I was going to do this podcast. And she was like, What do you want to say? Like, what's the one takeaway you want to leave people with? Um, and and honestly, I think really that what I would what I would tell people is that when when things like this happen in your church, ask questions. Like the leadership exists to shepherd you and to lead you, which means that you have a lot more power and authority than you realize. Um, And so when you see a, a minister or a pastor let go and you don't understand why, ask. And if you don't get a satisfactory answer, keep asking. Be the persistent widow until finally the wicked judge says, all right, I'll tell you the answer just so you leave me alone. I mean, I get why people don't ask, because it is often easier just to be like, such a shame, and and move on forward. And I I don't fault anyone for for not asking, because it can be a lot to lose a church community. Um, But, you know, if you have those questions, if you find yourself wondering, why is it that this church can never seem to keep a pastor or whatever— Ask those questions, be inquisitive, and don't just let them sweep things under the rug because that's often how injustice thrives is that people are afraid or unwilling to to just say, why did this happen?
0: Next week, we will be concluding this three-part series with a special episode featuring both Kendall and Ian. It was a beautiful conversation, and we cannot wait to share it with everyone. Until then, for Jonna Harris, I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. thoughts and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comment, suggestion, or correction of errors.